This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. There are a lot of things that matter to me. Family, community, culture, and peace of mind. Hi, it's Wilmer Valderrama. And when balancing life, I have to say nothing brings more comfort than having support. And when it comes to ensuring those things that matter to you the most, State Farm offers the support with an agent available in person or on the phone to discuss your coverage options. Support when you need it, however you choose. That's State Farm's way. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Amar, are you ready? Let's do it. Hey, I'm Wilmer Valderrama, and I am the host of this podcast. I never thought I would ever say that out loud, you know, but here I am. But here I am. And uh, I'm MR Raquel. I am one of the producers. You'll be hearing my voice from time to time on the show, so I just wanted to pop in and say howdy. We're stoked to be here with you today, introducing our new show, Essential Voices. Essential. You know, we've been hearing that word a lot. The term essential worker was everywhere during the pandemic. But we often didn't hear from essential workers themselves. I was curious to learn more about their stories and lives of our grocery workers, our teachers, our restaurant workers, from the folks who keep this country up and running. And why did this term essential workers appear overnight? Haven't the people who put food on our table, drive really long hours to deliver our packages, provide legal services to our most vulnerable communities, and also provide mental health resources always been essential? Totally, MR. And these folks aren't going to be any less essential 10 years from now. So thinking about all this, I jumped on Instagram a few months ago and I started a series of conversations called Six Feet Apart to listen to and connect with essential workers, hear their stories and drum up community support. I spoke with many impactful individuals like a farm worker in Alabama, a mom who raised five kids and was still out in the fields in the middle of a lockdown. I mean, that's just brave. Wow, Wilmer, thanks for sharing that. And so while Wilmer was out doing his thing, I was working with NPR StoryCorps to virtually record hundreds of audio stories with folks all around the country. I remember speaking with a couple in the Midwest who were donating handmade masks for their local hospital early on in the pandemic, and also with election poll workers in Texas who were counting ballots and having to enforce mask mandates. These stories and so many others that I heard challenge the narrative of what is considered essential. So that's the backstory for this show, right? We teamed up to see what more we can do to keep focus on this huge chunk of society that sustains everything we do. Exactly. Long after the performative support, the banging of pots and pans, clapping from apartment buildings with open windows, thank you signs on front lawns fade from the scene. So each week we'll be in conversation with an essential worker 
We'll hear their stories and ignite a dialogue about how we as a community can support their work and more importantly, the folks behind the work to be in solidarity together. We follow this conversation with a roundtable discussion between thought leaders as we continue to pave a road for solutions. Today, to kick us off, we're going to hear from our essential worker, Jenny Schwartz, who is a restaurateur in Oakland, California, and who last year founded the organization Feed ER to help get food to frontline workers at the height of the pandemic. Jenny is a prime example of the type of person who stepped up during the pandemic, going above and beyond for her community, while also working to keep her business afloat. She gets candid with us about what it took to stay open, the pivot she had to make, and how she's taking what she's learned the past year and looking forward. After we hear from Jenny, we'll share a roundtable conversation with two thought leaders, Nate Mook and Elsa Collins. Nate is the CEO of World Central Kitchen, an organization that worked with FeedER in Oakland to help make and distribute meals locally. World Central Kitchen has been on the front lines all over the country and world in response to food insecurity amplified by the pandemic. Elsa is the co-founder of This Is About Humanity, an organization that advocates for and brings meals and other services to families and immigrants at the U.S.-Mexico border. This Is About Humanity worked diligently to continue offering these services as the world shut down in the face of COVID-19. Wilmer, am I missing anything? I think we're good to go, Emar. Next, we'll be hearing from Jenny Schwartz about her efforts with FDR in Oakland. Jenny's story starts now. Jenny, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for spending this moment with me. I wanted to start by maybe telling us a little bit about what is the day in life in Jenny's life? When you wake up in the morning, what's the first thing you do? And then how do you go about your day? It's different every day. That's for sure. Generally, I wake up in the morning and the first thing I do is check a lot of emails and see what I have going on. We have a lot of events and a lot of staff to manage. We're still doing hundreds of meals a week for unhoused populations. It's a lot of special events, a lot of moving parts, putting out fires a lot of days. Hopefully they're not real fires, but that happens too sometimes. What is the process? How did you come to be passionate about this? So for FDR, it was like right when the pandemic started. It was literally the day the restaurants got shut down. So March of last year, Aylet Waldman, who's a local author, had posted something on Twitter about wanting to buy meals to restaurants and give them to hospital workers. And she asked for help and any restaurants who might be interested in being involved. So I immediately responded to her. She actually called me that night. We started talking about it. And I think by Monday morning, we had our first board meeting. People had already started Venmoing her money. And from there, we had 9 a.m. board meeting calls every day, every weekday for months and months. It's crazy how quickly it all came together. And we fed thousands and thousands of people and did a ton to support local restaurants. It was awesome. You went ahead and created and organized this network of restaurants that came together to help the community. Yeah. When we put the whole organization together, my part in it was to coordinate with all the restaurants. So I was talking to all the local restaurant owners and we were really concerned since it was happening at the same time as Black Lives Matter. So my goal was to have really good representation across the board of female owned restaurants, minority owned restaurants, a lot of local uh, mom and pop shops. And I had the support of getting to know these other restaurateurs. It was really such a community of all of us supporting each other. And just knowing that I was doing something to help, it really kept me going. You're connecting to a larger ecosystem of essential workers, specifically serving hospital personnel and all of that. Did it feel like you were more connected to 
the moment in history more than ever before. I mean, besides being just a restaurant, but now reaching out and really being there for the other essential workers, you know, the people that are in the front lines. It's absolutely true. I mean, one thing for me is that I'm really, if I would have had to stay home this whole time, I would have gone completely insane. I don't know what I would have done. So I'm a super active person and it was great to be able to get out of the house and feel like I was around people, even though I wasn't in close contact with a lot of people all the time. Um, I mean, we had a lot of contact with hospital workers and that was great because I felt like I had kind of a line on what was going on in hospitals and locally more than a lot of people did. And so much of the news we get, especially now is national news, local news outlets just aren't as strong as they used to be. So it's really hard to be in touch with your community. And in that way, I was. And it's very vague and it's very generalized. The percentages are so impersonal. So you don't really know what's happening on the local level unless you have a network. Yeah, exactly. And so one thing that was great about FDR is that we did have this organization. We were connected with doctors. We had a ton of volunteers working for us also. I mean, it was another thing is that we got just regular citizens who didn't know what to do with themselves during all of this, who weren't working or had so much extra time. And they were like, what do I do? So that's how we got so many donations initially. And that's how we got a ton of people. We had a network of like 60 drivers who would pick up food from restaurants for free and drop it off at the hospitals. And they were incredible. And to keep everyone motivated, we would have these monthly Zoom check-ins and all the hospital workers could join and the restaurateurs could join in and the volunteers could join. And we'd get all hands on And sometimes the hospital workers would get on and tell their stories and just talk about how they were so scared and that they were going to come home and get their family sick. So they literally hadn't seen their families in like a month. They would just come home and like lock themselves in a bedroom and they'd get on and just be in tears and talk about how these hot, delicious meals meant so much to them. It was amazing. I bet that just the sharing of that meal is almost healing in a way or at least, you know, kind of energizing to keep going. Yeah, that's absolutely what got me into this business in the first place. And I'll say that that was one of the hardest things about the pandemic for me personally, was that I'm in this business, the restaurant business that I love because I love creating experiences for people and sharing in those experiences and curating them. And my place is a place where people get to go to celebrate anniversaries and birthdays and meeting each other and, you know, seeing like long lost friends and even just a simple feeling of being relieved after a, a long day at work or a rough week or something. And I didn't get to be part of that for a year, but we were creating something. It was a beautiful thing. We raised about $600,000 literally immediately within weeks of the initial shutdown. And our goal was to spend it as rapidly as we could, because not only were we trying to feed frontline medical workers and keep the stamina and morale up of our local hospital workers, But we were really trying to support and keep alive the restaurants and we were suddenly shut down and it was one of the only sources of income that a lot of restaurants have if they weren't already pivoting to doing just takeout orders. We were just trying to stay open and be able to keep our staffs employed as much as we could. For me, a lot of my front of house workers were fine going on unemployment, but my kitchen staff back of house were mostly uneligible for unemployment. A lot of them undocumented workers, luckily with efforts like FDR and other things that we ended up doing. And then ultimately our takeout orders and then with the assistance of PPP loans, we were able to keep our back of house workers fully employed the whole time. And it's really been amazing. We have had no turnover since then. You start thinking about all of a sudden a world where you had to pivot into takeout. How was that transition for you guys? 
My restaurant, Hopscotch, we're coming up on nine years this month, and we have had a really committed local following. And so when we had to switch to takeout immediately and at the same time, everyone also had to stay home. So we actually had really strong response right away, and it was extremely sustainable, particularly in the beginning. But sustainable with the staff you had at that point, in percentages, how much of your staff do you still had on? So we basically needed hardly any front of house staff anymore, but we had the same kitchen staff running. So we've got six to eight people in the kitchen and they were working. And so even though our revenue was a little bit less than it had been when we were doing full service dining, it was kind of balanced out because our labor costs went down and we were able to still keep the kitchen staff fully employed. Went to the point like all of your basic costs of the restaurant, your insurance, your rent, all that stuff is the same. You know, the profit was gone, but basically we got to keep our business sustainable and we're still operating. Do you have any thoughts, any advice, any words of encouragement to the future essential workers and those who who are going to see what you've created and build from it and maybe expand on that? I mean, I'm, I'm sure that this will be really inspiring to a lot of people in the country to think about, oh, how can we do that on a local level? And now that the pandemic is getting to a point where we're not only managing, but we're seeing some type of fresh air coming into the window finally, and we're able to see the light at the end of the road. How do you hope that this evolves? Because I know we love to figure out how our community can continue to support what you've done, that will be part of the next phase of these conversations. So for FDR, I mean, it's no more. We kind of did our job and felt really proud of what we did and we ended it well. But I'm now on the board of an organization that was established around the same time called Community Kitchens. And it's also in Oakland, and it's an organization of restaurants who are working to feed unhoused populations. World Central Kitchen came into Oakland and did a lot of work at the height of the pandemic to make sure that our hungry populations in Oakland were fed. But now they're transitioning out. And so now we think that there will be a need moving forward, and we need to make sure that all these unhoused populations will be fed and taken care of. And that's something that our local restaurants are clearly willing, ready, and able to step up and do. So my advice to people who want to get involved is, if you have an idea, just put it out there. I think that your community will support you. There are going to be people who want to get involved and be part of it. Ask for help. I think you'd be so surprised, you know, the response you get. You know, Wilmer, what really strikes me from what Jenny shared is how she leveraged her own particular skills and those of her local community to get things done. She looked around and made real change just by focusing on and uplifting her own neighbors. Yes, and while Feed ER may be over for now, Jenny's efforts are an example of the type of work that is also being done on a national and global scale to fight hunger and support those in need. I want to know more about these larger efforts and how we can all get more involved. So we'll be back after the break with Nate Mook of World Central Kitchen and Elsa Collins of This Is About Humanity. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I often get asked why I'm such a big fan of wrestling. And it's all thanks to my grandma. Growing up, we would watch matches together. And that bond turned me into a lifelong fan. Hi, I'm Freddie Prinze Jr., 
and on my podcast, Wrestling with Freddie, we know how important it is to have the right teammate because things can get pretty tricky quick. So, when things get complicated and you need help, State Farm gives you options. They show you what's possible for ensuring what matters to you. One of the things that matters to me? Sharing memories and revisiting wrestling's greatest moments. And with State Farm's support of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, I get to do just that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Listen to new episodes of your favorite Michael Tura shows wherever you listen to podcasts. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Just a heads up to our listeners, we recorded with Elsa remotely, and at moments you'll notice some sound quality issues up top. Welcome, Nate. Welcome, Elsa. We're so thankful to have you with us today. Nate, you're the CEO of World Central Kitchen, and you were working with Jenny and FDR in Oakland to make and distribute meals during the pandemic. And Elsa, you're the co-founder of This Is About Humanity, an organization that was working to provide meals and other services to folks at the U.S.-Mexico border throughout the pandemic. So to kick off the conversation today, Nate, when you think about this last year, what images do you see? Whose face do you see? Whose cooking do you smell? And could you describe some of these memories? I think for me, the thing that really resonates the most over the past year is seeing the images and experiencing myself. I mean, being there on the front lines as families stood in long lines to get food for their children. We were working extensively in New York City and we'd have families that would come and show up at four or five in the morning, even though the food distribution didn't necessarily start until 11 or 12 p.m., maybe waiting for up to eight hours to get their spot in line. They would bring a chair because they knew they had to bring food back to their families that day. And we rightfully so talk a lot about all of the amazing heroes during the last year, our frontline healthcare workers, our first responders, our folks working in grocery stores or picking food in the fields of California. But I also think we don't talk enough about the moms, the dads, the families that in a really, really difficult time when they lost so much really stepped up to take care of those that they love. And from folks taking care of their elderly grandparents or parents or their kids, I mean, I think that to me is really what stands out over the past year. Turning it over to you, Elsa, could you also describe some of the memories you have of the last year? Yeah, I mean, I'll just echo that. I think that for me, the sort of image is how people were really coming together to see how they could help each other. And I think that you've seen so much humanity in the last year, even in the face of so much hardship and so many obstacles, that every time I would look around for someone to show up to a, an event, to help distribute food, to help families, there was no shortage of people who were raising their hands 
to do that. So for me, it's really been just seeing the community around me really stand up and take action. And that's been really gratifying in such a hard year. On our recording with Jenny, she described within 24 hours that FDR got started. Could you both describe what your quick pivots were at the start of the pandemic? World Central Kitchen, we're a nonprofit organization founded by Chef Jose Andres, founded 10 years ago after the big earthquake in Haiti, looking at the ways that food can be solutions to some of the big challenges that the world faces. And our work really transformed dramatically in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria when we were on the ground and nobody was focused on food and getting food to millions of Puerto Ricans that were cut off and had no electricity, no water, no communications and built an operation feeding millions of meals all across the island. And since that time we've been really heavily focused on our disaster response work, looking at crises and responding to communities in need. And as over time that work has expanded as we focused beyond just natural disasters like wildfires and hurricanes to sometimes man-made disasters like, you know, refugee crises and a number of other issues. But a global pandemic is really unlike anything that you can plan for or have any context for. So we really had to shift the way that we operate. Traditionally, in a lot of hunger emergencies, the situation is generally geographically focused, right? If you think about a hurricane or a wildfire or at the border where we work extensively with Elsa and her team in Tijuana, those are sort of focused areas where you can get a lot of attention and support to. But the pandemic was everywhere, right? It was in our big cities. It was in the small towns. It was affecting everyone. So we had to really think up a new model to be able to reach all of those that needed to be reached who were now food insecure because of what was going on. We had a health crisis that transformed into an economic crisis that then became a hunger crisis because of all of these factors. And so even though World Central Kitchen as an organization we couldn't set up kitchens everywhere where we're cooking, you know, tens of thousands of meals in these kitchens and distributing them out because we can't be everywhere. We're a fairly small nonprofit, but what we thought was that well what if we could activate local restaurants? to start providing meals within their communities and then World Central Kitchen could in turn support those restaurants could pay those restaurants to then prepare meals and we would assist sort of in like an air traffic controller sort of way getting the meals to where they needed to go. And so for us this was a big shift to the way that we operate because we were now instead of ourselves cooking we were now partnering with thousands of restaurants all across the world. But what was so great about it was that in the process of supporting these restaurants as they were feeding their communities and most of these restaurants were small businesses themselves they could keep their staff employed they could keep buying from their distributors which meant that the distributors could keep buying from the farmers you could keep that sort of you know cycle of the system going so you wouldn't have more people becoming food insecure so it was quite a shift for the way that we normally operate but definitely one that we thought was very important and will live on beyond the pandemic for this is about humanity obviously a lot of what we were doing was being proximate to the issue and with the pandemic proximity was obviously not safe 
for the individuals who were waiting at the border, who were in shelters that had hundreds of people. Social distancing is just a dream down there. Access to PPE, to testing, to vaccines, all those things were not within the realm of possibility at the time. So really trying to understand that we didn't want to stop helping these people. And so really focusing on a couple of different matching grants to provide these shelters with PPE, with the access to medical care. And as Nate mentioned, the pandemic showed that food insecurity is an issue that is affecting really everybody, and especially those who are in those shelters who are waiting. And so with World Central Kitchen, who has a kitchen in Tijuana, they're cooking meals and they're feeding at least nine of the shelters that we personally work with every day. And so to me, that was so incredible to see that that had not stopped from our end, providing the support financially from a distance, and then also actually focusing more on families that had been separated who were now reunified living in the United States and providing them with that support. They're also experiencing higher levels of infection and death, frontline workers, essential workers, and not necessarily feeling comfortable maybe going to the doctor if they got sick or not having a hospital nearby. And so really doing drive-through distributions for toiletries and backpacks and school supplies. You know, distance learning was very hard for a lot of these families who had no access potentially to a laptop or to the equipment that was necessary to be able to continue in school. So giving them that support and then partnering with World Central Kitchen, when they would come by, they would be able to get a warm meal to take home with them and their family. So I think the key for us was it might look a little bit different, but we're not going anywhere. And in fact, we're going to just try to find different ways, safe ways to still be able to show up for these families. We'll be right back after this break. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard to snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notify, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I love sharing positive tips with my listeners on everything from health challenges to relationship troubles. Because life happens, baby, but you got this. Hi there. I'm Honey German, and I know we can all use some positive energy these days. That's why I make sure to empower my community because a bit of motivation and support can go a long way. And luckily, we have State Farm to support us. Like when you talk to a State Farm agent to choose the coverage you need and they have the options to protect the things you value most. It's the perfect positive tip you need. State Farm is also a big supporter of the My Cultura podcast network, where we as podcast hosts get to share our experiences and stories. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Listen to new episodes of your favorite My Cultura shows wherever you listen to podcasts. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare.
Welcome back to Essential Voices. So you both have mentioned now the work in Tijuana and on the border that connects you. Could you speak a little bit more about that connection? Yeah, I mean, I'm from Tijuana originally. So when This Is About Humanity really started, World Central Kitchen was already on the ground, as Nate mentioned. They had been working with local chefs, Rufo Ibarra, Javier Plasencia, like chefs who had restaurants in Tijuana who were showing up to cook and using their kitchens to provide the food. So when there was that big camp at El Barretal, World Central Kitchen was out there giving food. And so that was my first introduction. Sam Block, who I like to say is like a a modern day Indiana Jones who just parachutes to different places, was down there manning the kitchen. And really the goal was like, okay, how do we work together to try to support these individuals? And so they're still there. And when we've been going down pre-COVID, and I'm sure when we start to go down again, we will be back uh, inside that kitchen. And I'll just add, I think what's so wonderful about working with Elsa and her team is the human-centered focus. Oftentimes, we look at some of the challenges that are being faced in times of disaster. We almost look at it very statistically. We look at it as like numbers. And you got to step back and look at the human context here. And for us, really, that's the priority and why we love working with Elsa and her team, because they bring such an amazing complement to what our team is able to do, really focusing on the food and the nourishment and supporting so many of those families there. And then having that sort of collaboration is really wonderful. When I think about solution making, when you think about not waiting for your local and national leadership to actually get in the game, there's a lot of localized solution that happens. And I think about how do you invite the community? How do they feel like you can get in the game? You know, um, I'd love to start there and then see how we can dig deeper into finding a roadmap where all of us can really feel like we can get in the game. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're really saying is that organizations are filling the gap for what we traditionally might think that government would, could, or should be doing. And so as you see people step in to fill in the gap, at least one of my goals, and I know World Central Kitchen has the same one, is to invite people in. You can grow weary in well-doing. You don't want to, right? But no, there's a lot of energy output that goes into that. So you want to bring in as many people as you can. And I think that by bringing them closer to the issue specifically, when I think about how we do drive-through distributions or how we do events or when we do trips. It's about bringing people closer so they feel more empowered, not just to speak about the issue, but to think about, okay, like, what do I have that I can then give that's unique to me, whether it's my time, whether it's money, whether it's like, I know somebody who makes backpacks, whatever it is, I'm hoping to provide an entry point for you to come in and be able to self-engage and become an activist in real life yourself. And so I think that to me, it's filling the gap and then it's meeting people where they're at. Like not everybody is gonna be able to go to the border or feel like they can do all the things. But if you told somebody come for an hour, paint with some families and bring a bag of groceries with you, I mean, that's easy. I think a lot about what's really happening and the responsibility we all have with platforms like the ones we're on now to really broadcast the ability and the empower in the community. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because everyone is now their own personal newsfeed. You don't have to have been an entertainer. You don't got to be an influencer in quotes. Now you have the ability to really talk from peer to peer, from neighbor to neighbor about what can be done. 
There's two main things that I think about every time I go down to the border or meet with a family or as we're having this conversation. And the first thing is nobody decides to leave their life if it's not imperative. And so when people are like, I don't understand why people are coming or what's happening. To me, it's like these families are really facing two choices. One is certain death and one is the possibility of it. And it is human nature capacity to want to survive. And people are going to take that chance. When you look at those are the choices that people are being faced with. We used to say they want a better life. Now they just want to live. And so I think that that's something that we really need to understand. Secondly, I think a lot of times people think like, well, you know, like border, it's not really my issue. But here's the deal. I always tell people, listen, if you care about climate change, you should really care about what's happening at the border because a lot of these refugees and a lot of this migration is being caused by climate change, people not being able to, you know, cultivate in the fields where they're from. You should probably care about what's happening at the border. Sometimes people say like, oh, my issue is like, LGBTQ community. The most traumatic stories I've ever heard are from LGBTQ asylum seekers. What we really need to think about, this isn't just like a border issue. This is an issue about where we are as human beings in society, in this world, and what are we doing each in our own places to try to make this a better thing? Because there are between 40 to 60 million people right now in some type of migration. And a small percentage, yes, is happening at the border, but this is happening globally. And so I think when we think about that, we have to think about how we envision these fellow human beings and why are they doing these things? And it's not to make your life harder. Trust me. They're really just trying to live and to keep their family safe and alive. And I think that's something that we can all relate to. I'm curious what advice you would give to folks on a community-based level who want to start projects like FDR but maybe don't have the tools, the resources, or the know-how. What advice would you have for those folks? Well, one of the things I would mention, which is exactly kind of what happened with FDR, was they looked for partners that could augment the things that they might be needing. They didn't want to reinvent the wheel from scratch. They said this is what we want to accomplish. We want to get food to our frontline healthcare staff that are sacrificing that are working crazy hours that are saving lives every day and they don't have time to get food. There's nowhere open and so this needs to be a priority. But they weren't trying to sort of reinvent the wheel. They were able to tap into restaurants that already had capacity. And that's how we got linked up with them at World Central Kitchen because they reached out and said, "Look, we can't necessarily deal with. We don't want to build a finance team and coordinate payments and all of these logistical, like administrative things. We just want to get food to the doctors and the nurses and the cleaning crews and everybody who right now is right there on the front lines." And that was. Great, because as World Central Kitchen, we could say great because we've already built up the infrastructure to support that. So you can just plug right into what we're already doing, and then just focus on what you need to do. So I think that's a key thing that I think you don't have to, you know. Sometimes when you're looking at a problem or playing a role in something, it can be very daunting and overwhelming because you're like, how am I going to do all of this stuff? But there might be great organizations. Whether it's some like World Central Kitchen helping an administrative side, or this is about humanity that's got all of this experience and can pull on things within their network, that you can just sort of focus in on the things that are really important to you, where you're able to bring something unique to the table. 
our World Central Kitchen team didn't have all the relationships in the hospitals. We didn't initially have all the relationships at the local restaurants that were serving their community. That's what Jenny and her team were able to bring to the table. So that type of collaboration is just such an effective way to get the work done. I'll just say that like, I think that sometimes people feel like you have to start something big to make an impact. And the truth is you really don't. A lot of times people will be like, wait, I don't live near the border. So I guess that means nothing. And I'm like, well, actually, I feel like uh, if you look closely at your neighbors, your colleagues, your own community, you will find individuals who have come to this country who would love to have your support and know that even a smile, an introduction, wanting to get closer and getting to know them. And so I think as we start to see how we can go into different communities, we did drive-throughs in San Diego. We did them in Los Angeles. We just did one in San Francisco and looking to do one in Miami. There's a lot of places where we have families who would love to have your guys' support. And this is the other thing. It doesn't have to be If your thing isn't separated and reunified families or food insecurity, but it's something else, trust me, there's an organization that already exists where you are locally. You just need to go find it and say, like, I want to volunteer and I'm ready. And I think that that's what I'm hoping. Even if you come just once and participate with me, that's great. And I would love to have them do that more often. But I'm also like, find your own passion because you're going to be able to more and more and more because you're loving what you're doing. We encourage everyone listening to check out both This Is About Humanity and World Central Kitchen. We also hope that after listening to Jenny, Nate, and Elsa, you are empowered to look to your own community for ways that you can be more of service. As we have learned, we all have different skills, we have different strengths that we can definitely bring to the table. Thank you for joining us in our very first episode of Essential Voices. Tune in next week to hear us talk to our next essential worker, Leticia, a health teacher, followed by a roundtable with guest Monica Garcia, a board member from the L.A. Unified School District. Essential Voices with Wilmer Valderrama is produced by me, M.R. Raquel, Allison Shano, and Kevin Rutkowski, with production support from associate producer Lillian Holman. Executive producers Wilmer Valderrama, Adam Reynolds, Leo Clem, and Aaron Hilliard. This episode was edited by Sean Tracy and features original music by Will Rosati. Special thanks to this week's Essential Voice, Jenny Schwarz, and to Brian Crooks, whose story you'll hear on a later episode, for introducing us. Special thanks to our thought leaders Nate Mook from World Central Kitchen and Elsa Collins from This Is About Humanity. Additional thanks to Chloe Mata Crane and Satchel Kaplan Allen. This is a Clamor and WV Entertainment production in partnership with iHeartRadio's My Cultura Podcast Network. For more podcasts from iHeart, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notify, and Amex card member benefits at select events, 
You'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Tengo diabetes. Yo, asma. Estamos, Estamos en riesgo, riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. 19 años o más con afecciones crónicas como asma, diabetes, EPOC o enfermedad cardíaca o tienes 65 años o más, estás en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20, una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Aunque te hayas vacunado previamente con otras vacunas contra la neumonía, Prevnar 20 puede ayudar a proveer protección adicional. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones de 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Los adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. Los efectos secundarios incluyen dolor e hinchazón en el área de la inyección, fatiga, dolor de cabeza, dolor muscular y en las coyunturas. Para obtener la información para la prescripción completa, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita prevnar20enespañol.com. What the world needs now is positivity. Connecting, relating, and being human together is where it's at. Hi there, honey German, and I know life happens, but trust, you got this. And State Farm got us. It feels good knowing that State Farm agents are there to help you choose the right coverage with great support 24-7. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.